thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. So I think is traveling. I've uh, seen Deneo here in the first hour of the show. Desperately trying to make sure technology is not going to fail us as we speak to Chris. Chris, can you hear me? Are you well? I am very well. I can hear you. And I am traveling. I'm in one of the most beautiful parts of Britain at the moment. I'm up in the Lake District, oh, which has, has some tallest mountains in England. And they're not very tall by by international standards. Um, but also one of the deepest lakes in the UK as well is, is here. And uh, I haven't been in the water, but I've looked at the water, but I have been up the mountains. <laughs> That is beautiful. We'll see how long technology holds up in the Lake District. In the meantime, let me invite our listeners to call in. If you have a question about the weird and wonderful world of science, you can put it to Chris by giving us a call on 011-883-0702 and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. But of course, we always like to start with a fascinating story uh, from science that might have played out or that is in the news in recent weeks or recent times and this week chris there's a fascinating science story uh, that has landed on my desk that i want you to tell our listeners about which is a sort of i don't know what a, a mucus that is secreted by slugs that can help uh, medicine transform in certain ways yeah uh, this is a paper in the journal science and these researchers have taken inspiration from a slug to produce a tissue glue now why do we need glue well when in, when we injure tissues or we do surgery, you don't just want to stitch things back together. That's not ideal. You can get much better repair if you can glue tissue surfaces back together. But the glues that we have to date are either not very strong or they're not very nice because they're toxic or they don't have the kind of mechanical properties that we would want. So a group of researchers in Harvard have been looking for other possible ways to solve this problem, and they realised that one particular species of slug actually produces a very nasty mucus to deter predators from eating it, but that this mucus has got many of the properties that they were looking for. So they looked at how this mucus works, and they've now made a copy of it uh, and made their own chemical equivalent and they can use it to stick tissues back together very effectively and even repair holes in the heart. And hmm. if you have injury to your heart, then obviously the pressures that are being generated in the heart mean it's very difficult to patch over a, a breach in the heart muscle. If you have a heart attack, for example, and the heart ruptures, it's very difficult to repair that. They can do this with this stuff. The way it works is that they've taken a combination of chemicals that have a positive charge, this means the glue is naturally attracted to tissue which has a negative charge because positives and negatives attract. And they have linked this to a polymer which gives it extraordinary strength because it dissipates stretch. And the combination of those two factors, the charges which glue the thing together, even to a wet surface with something capable of stretching in all the dimensions and directions gives it incredible strength 
and and they've done this sequence of experiments literally making holes in hearts in pigs and putting the patch on and it doesn't rupture until well beyond what would be normal blood pressure mm. so they're very encouraged and they think because this has very good biocompatibility it's not toxic does seem to perform very well we could have a, a very good very powerful new tissue glue for doing all kinds of things and repairing all kinds of injured tissues and surgeries and that kind of thing with fantastic our first caller with a question for the naked scientist erica welcome to the conversation what do you want to ask chris hi this is hi chris and uh, thank you so much for taking my call mm. um i was interested in the cam phenomenon and how come it is that globally a lot of people wake up at approximately 3 a.m.? Is that a thing? Did you hear that, Chris? Yeah. Um, I've been waking up at about 4 a.m. this week, but that's largely because I'm on holiday and I keep drinking loads of beer before I go to bed. Um, well, it, it is true, though, that alcohol or, or drinks do wake you up. One, because it fills your bladder. The other is because when the alcohol gets metabolized, it gets turned into uh, a range of metabolites that are themselves excitatory and what we call excitotoxins in your brain. Um, the other thing that can happen when people get stressed or anxious about things, your body prepares for the day ahead by turning on various hormones, including the stress hormone cortisol, at between three and four o'clock in the morning. And so that the idea is that by the time you do naturally wake up later, your body's raring to go and your metabolism is, is switched on and switched to the right level. But in people who become depressed or anxious or they're worried about something, then sometimes that peak in cortisol can happen earlier. It can also happen to a higher level mm. and this is sufficient to wake someone up. So any of those factors could play a role. Also environmental stimuli as well. If someone's in an environment where a certain set of noises or something happens at a certain time, that could also account for it. But I haven't heard of it being given a name as the 3 a.m. phenomenon. We'll have to look that one up. Okay, let's take a break there. 12 minutes after 10. If you have a question for the Naked Scientist, I'll take your call about the wonderful world of science on the other side of this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Dave, hello. Good morning. I've got a funny thing with the hot and cold water coming out of my tap at home. Uh, I've got reasonably clear water coming out of the cold water tap. But the hot water out of the geese are very cloudy. I've got to wait like two or three minutes for it to settle down. Mm. Why? That's interesting. Okay. Let's see whether, Hello, the, whether the naked scientist can be a good plumber. <laughs> well, the, the, there are a number of reasons why water might be cloudy coming from the hot water tank. Um, one is that you have dissolved gas in there. And if the water settles and it seems to clear from the bottom upwards... Then, in other words, it starts off cloudy through looking a bit like milk, but then it clears at the bottom and clears progressively towards the top. Um, there, there can be bubbles of gas in there. One possibility is, has that water come through a water softener? Because it could be that if you've had it come through a water softener, it's, it classically does or can look like that as, as the water settles in the cup. Um, so maybe you could just tell me, have you got a water softener? Was that a no, Dave? No, no, there's no water softener. Okay, because it, it, then, then it's more likely it's just dissolved bubbles of gas, which because you're pushing this under pressure, uh, the gas is dissolved in the hot water. As it comes out under pressure, the pressure comes off in the cup, obviously, and then the water settles out. Um, the gas 
comes off, and because you, if you look very closely, are they tiny bubbles in the cloudiness? Very likely, yes. Uh, can I turn down the temperature in the geyser? Well, it's probably not the temperature. It's it's because of the pressure. But it, it won't do you any harm. And if it's just bubbles of dissolved gas, then that should be fine. It's where that gas is coming from, though. This is a bit of a worry. Um, it might just be there was there was water there was gas dissolved in the water on the way in, and it's just because it's got warm. I think I think it's fine. Okay, Dave. All the best. Let's go to Claremont. Bruce, welcome. Hi there. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, I just have a question about the wind. I understand what drives the wind to get high pressure and low pressure due to differential heating of the Earth's surface, blah, blah, blah. What I want to know is when, when the wind blows, when you get these sudden gusts of wind, what drives them? What's the force that drives them? Because it can't just be a sort of pressure due to the sun heating differently. What is that? Yeah, lovely question. And, and actually, the answer is the same. You know, in physics, things move because a force is acting on them. And in the case of air, where does that force come from? Well, it is pressure differences. And you've got to think of it not in terms of the whole world and the atmosphere moving all at once, but packets or masses of air, which are being pushed around all the time by pressure differences. So when you get gusts, Basically, what's happened is that you've got a whole bunch of, of air packets have coincided in one place and they've added together their, their velocities, their movements, and they're all then moving in the same direction all at that one time. Um, it, it's still the same physics that gives you uh, a movement. If you've got basically a pressure difference, you've got a force acting on the air, it will make the air move. You were right with what you said. What I understand is how you get how you get such a strong gust forming. I mean, normally when if the wind blows, you know, you can feel it get stronger and stronger and stronger during the day. That I understand. But these sudden gusts, and then it just drops completely, and then it gusts again. Yeah. So if you think about, if imagine that I've got a whole bunch of packets of air, and they're moving in different directions, but then they coincide in one place at one time. They, they can't suddenly not move. So if yeah. they've all got momentum in in one direction. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, let's imagine some of them are moving partly in one direction, partly in another. If they all coincide in one place at one time, because they've all been blown into each other, they will add together their relative um, di different movements and directions of movement. And so you'll get a sudden apparent gust in one direction because some of the air has a component of movement in one particular direction. And that gives you that gust. Thanks, Bruce. Thank Thanks so much for your question. Eh? Much appreciated. 20 minutes after 10. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Houghton. Robbie, just turn on the radio for me, then I'll come to you um, after our next uh, question. Yvonne, welcome to The Naked Scientist. What question do you have? Hi, Eusebius and uh, Chris. Chris, I know you explain things very simply. I've just finished constructing myself a little coil called a vortex coil. And I'm wondering... Uh, I, I saw the, the people explaining how, uh, why it, it produces electricity out of nothing. Can you please explain it to me as simply as possible? I'm just an old lady that made this water <laughs> coin out of the instructions from the internet, and it produces uh, enough electricity to, to uh, power up a, a whole lot of things. Oh, wow. It sounds to me like you're a clever, complicated old lady. Chris? <laughs> Well, I've, I've not seen this. Could you do me a favour? Because before I talk about something that I, I've not, I'm not familiar with, can you send me, just tweet at Naked Scientist, a, a reference to it, and I will take a look and I'll come back to you next week with my thoughts because other, otherwise I'd be speculating because I haven't seen this. Yeah, it's called a vortex coil. 
Wonderful. Well, if you wouldn't mind tweeting me the details of where you got it from and, and et cetera, et cetera, then I will take a look for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yvonne. We'll look into that one. Rabbi, hello. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a rabbi, and, uh, and I came across many years ago a source in the Talmud that talks about is a, is a difference in the nature of sweat from the face and that from the rest of the body. The rest of the body contains toxins, and the face doesn't. That's what it says. It makes sense to me, but I've never seen it documented that there's a difference in the sweat from the face as to the rest of the body. Can you comment? Yeah, hello. Thanks for the question. Um, the answer is that the, the sweat is not toxic. Let's just lay that one to rest. There is no toxic nature to sweat. Sweat is the excretion of a fluid onto the skin surface, which has a number of purposes. One purpose is to cool you down, because when you put water onto the skin surface, that water evaporates, and as it evaporates, it takes latent heat of evaporation with it, and that pulls energy out of your skin, cooling you down. The other thing that sweat does is to act as a signal, because it's got various other things dissolved in the sweat, which can give away information about you. And this includes pheromonal signals, which may influence the behavior of a person who might fancy you. The sweat that is made across the body surface is not the same everywhere. There are what are called eccrine glands and there are apocrine glands. And they make two different types of sweat. The sweat that you make on your forearms, on your face, through your head hair to cool you down, that's mainly just salty water. The other kinds of sweat glands that occur under your arms, between your legs, in the other bits that get sweaty, those areas are the ones that also contain pheromonal signals and they're the bits that tend to get sweaty and smelly and that you like to put deodorant onto. So that there is a difference in the composition of sweat on different parts of the body, but it's not toxic and it does have an important signalling role as well as a cooling role. Thank you, Rabbi. Ronald, welcome. Hello, yes. Um, after a consultation with the doctor the other day, I heard the term diverticulitis. I've never heard it before. I'd like to know what it is. You and me both. Um, well, the, the word diverticulitis actually comes from a Latin word. A diverticulum uh, was a Latin word that meant a house of ill repute. And what these uh, diverticuli are, in your in, they're in the intestine, they're in the large bowel, most commonly in the last bit of the large bowel, and they are little outpouchings of the lining of the intestine between the muscle that makes up the coat around the outside of the intestine. They usually occur in individuals who have had a long-standing history of constipation or high pressure inside the bowel so the muscle has to work hard to push things along not always but often it's associated with constipation or a long history of constipation and that high pressure forces the the lining of the bowel out between the the strands of the muscle uh, that's not harmful normally but sometimes these little outpouchings which are the diverticulum the diverticula they can become blocked they can also become inflamed and they can also sometimes get uh, infected or they can even rupture and they can cause a range of different consequences. But as long as they don't have those things happen to them, 
when they're, they're just there, they're not going to cause harm. But they can be seen when a person does a certain type of image of the intestine or they, or they put a scope in and have a look. You can see that they're there. Um, that means that a doctor would want to keep an eye on them. But as long as they don't have a problem, they won't necessarily cause a problem. But they are a risk factor for a range of things such as infections or bleeding and other things like that. Thank you, Ronald. So we can squeeze in one final question, uh, Chris, before I let you enjoy your vacation. Paul in Cape Town, welcome. What do you want to ask? Hi, Chris. How are you, CBS? I just want to know, um, when I use my gate remote or my car immobilizer remote or any sort of remote and I'm out of range, like my car won't open, and I put the remote to my head and I press the button and the car opens or the garage gate opens, in the set, and I'm out of range without putting it up to my head. Why is that? <laughs> okay, this is actually quite a common myth conception. People say, does this make a difference? One, one thing that it does do is it can bring you more in line of sight because if you put something higher, it's in the same way that we put a, an antenna or an aerial for things high to have a, a direct line of sight with the receiver. So you minimize the distance and therefore you maximize the chance that the signal will reach the receiver. That's one thing. The other is one, one person speculated that you may even be turning yourself into part of the antenna by uh, actually making contact with it. But I think that's very unlikely. It's more likely that by putting the thing up high, you are reducing the distance between you and the target and therefore you maximize the likelihood that the signal makes it through. Great stuff. Thank you for that question, Paul. Chris, that's all we've got time for. Looking forward to hearing more of your knowledge that you share so generously with us next week, Friday. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.